Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our living hope. Uh, thank you that we have you. And Lord, I pray this morning that as I speak, we will hear you, our living hope, our Lord, our Savior, and go and spread you and the news of you to those around us. Amen. Last week, for those of you who were here, um, I spoke on the subject of discipleship, um, which is looking very much at um, Jesus and how he trained and modeled and, and developed his disciples so that they then could go on and do the same for others and so on. And so then we looked at how Jesus does the same for us still today. And then from that, how we can then uh, be a blessing to others around us. And we can, we can disciple others, and they can disciple us. And this week, what I wanted to look at was, in a sense, is kind of the opposite. Because what I'm looking at this week is um, how Jesus related to those who were not yet his followers, those who did not know him. And the passage we're going to look at gives the context, so we'll just jump straight into that immediately. It's Luke 15, verses 1 through 10 is what we'll look at to start with. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he'll joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So the context, as I say, is given at the beginning there, the first couple of verses. Jesus is spending time with what it says, I love in my version, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Um, so yeah, these were, these were not the good guys, okay? These were people who were sinners and probably pretty happy with being sinners, frankly. And the Pharisees and the other religious teachers were unhappy with Jesus for spending time with these people. And I think they would have had a couple of reasons why they were unhappy with, with him for that. One was because they had this idea, which comes from the Old Testament idea, if you remember, of clean and unclean. And so their idea is that in, in the Old Testament, if something unclean touched something clean, then the, uh, the clean becomes unclean. Um, and so th for the Pharisees and so on, their idea was if we spend time with these people, we get contaminated by them. We want to stay pure for God. So in order to do so, we have to keep separate from these people who are not pure. 
And so Jesus, by spending time with them, they're like, well, you're a teacher. You claim to be ser serving God and teaching God's message. How can you spend time with them and be contaminated by them? Um, that doesn't work. So they're not happy with him for that. I think they also had a second reason, which was they could argue that by uh, rejecting these people and avoiding them, they were actually doing them a favor because they could say, well, you know, by shunning them, they know they're shunned, so they know they're bad, so they know they need to change. And now, you know, by shunning them, we're showing them that they need to become more like us, right? We're pure, they're not, they need to, to make that change. And Jesus spending time with these, these sinners is muddying that, he's ruining their plan. Because by spending time with them, they're like, well, you're making them feel like they're okay. They don't need to change. And especially it mentions how Jesus was eating with them, which is a very intimate thing to do in their culture. Um, very, you know, you're fellowshipping with them. And so, uh, you know, it's only coincidence, obviously, for the Pharisees that shunning them also meant they get to just stay with the people they like and to, you know, be with their friends and so on. But, you know, they could be upset with Jesus for both of those reasons. So Jesus tells them actually three parables, and we're looking at the first two firstly, and then we'll come to the third one afterward. But what he's trying to do, a lot of Jesus' parables actually were intended to conceal truth rather than reveal it for reasons which I was going to go into in this sermon, but I don't have time. So we'll do that another time. But um, in these parables, he's not. He tells three different parables to really try and get across to these religious leaders why he's doing what he's doing. And the first one is the parable of the lost sheep which will, here we go, a very famous story. And Jesus uh, tells this parable, and the shepherd has 100 sheep, and he, uh, one of them goes missing. So he leaves 99 in the wilderness and goes in search of the one that's missing. Now, for one thing, for the, for the Pharisees and so on, this uh, parable would have had an immediate direct connection to them, because in the Old Testament, especially amongst the prophets, the religious leaders were often referred to as shepherds to the people. So immediately there's a direct connection. They know he's talking to them. But Jesus uses extremes here to try and get across to the religious leaders how much God cares about these people. Anyone who was a shepherd in that culture would have thought, okay, this guy has 100 sheep, one goes missing, he leaves 99 in the wilderness to go look for the one. Now, the wilderness is not a pleasant place. The wilderness has no fences, the wilderness has lots of wild animals. You don't just leave 99 sheep to wander in the wilderness. Not only that, why go after the one that's missing? The chances are it was eaten by a wild animal, right? So he's leaving 99 to their own devices, and sheep, if any of you have sheep, know that when they're left to their own devices, they don't get on terribly well, um, and goes to look for this one. And he searches and searches, and he um, is relentless in his pursuit of this one until he finds it. When he's found it, he carries it home on his shoulders and says to um, his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. Notice he carries it home. He doesn't take it back to the wilderness because the other 99, you know, they're gone. Um, but he's rejoicing over this one that's lost. And the point is Jesus is making this extreme example 
to show how much God is relentless in his pursuit of those who are not yet part of his family, who are not at home. Now, if there were those in his audience who were not country folk, uh, more city folk maybe, he tells a second story to get across the same idea about the woman with 10 silver coins. She loses one, and she is relentless in her pursuit of this one that's missing. Now, these 10 silver coins would have been meaningful to her, not just financially, uh, but also uh, personally, because in their culture, the 10 silver coins was her dowry that she received when she married. And so uh, it was a personal value to her as well as a um, financial value. And she clears out the whole house. She searches that place thoroughly until she finds that lost coin. And Jesus is sort of poking here at our natural human instinct, actually to do the same if you think about it, which is that if we have the similar situation, if we have 10 of something and we lose one, we obsess about the one that's missing. We don't think, oh, well, at least I've got the other nine. That's okay. We go, ah, where did I put that thing? Dang it. And you ask around your family, you're like, okay, who saw it last? Where did, it, where did I put it down? I mean, I lose things all the time. My kids know this. Um, that I constantly have to ask them to call my phone because I can't remember where I put it down. Um, and it's, it's very obsessive, isn't it? It's not even like I need my phone at that moment, but it's missing. And I'm like, where the heck is it? So um, I'm searching everywhere for it. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across here, is God's focus on those who are lost. And he's saying to these Pharisees and these religious teachers, that's where God's beam, searchlight, is focused, is on these people who are missing. And he personally, of course, could have added, you know, that he gave up unimaginably much in order to come for us. The shepherd, the woman, they searched. Jesus gave up an incredible amount to come to find us. And why would he, when he came that far, go, yeah, but you're too bad, I'm sorry, or uh, yeah, but you smell, or yeah, but you're not one of my kind of, you know, not my type of person. He's not going to stop short at the last second. He's going to pursue to the end to find these people and to bring them back to God. But then Jesus does something kind of odd. He tells another parable, which is probably his most famous parable of all. It's the parable of what we call the prodigal son or the lost son. And um, it's a parable which I think is rightly famous because you could write and probably, in fact, have people have written hundreds of sermons on this parable because there is so much in there. If you read through it personally, I was reading it several times in preparing for this sermon. And it's just genius the way it's pieced together the different things, the different aspects that are in there. There's just so much there. But this morning, we're not actually going to read the whole thing because what I'm focusing on is the first part. The last section of this parable, uh, for those of you who are familiar with it, uh, looks at the older brother and his reaction to the situation. And that is a whole wonderful story and has a lot of meaning. But today, we're going to be looking mainly at the, the lost son. So let's read this parable. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. 
A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with, with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. In the first two parables, the focus is very much on the one who's seeking, isn't it? It's uh, the, the, far, the farmer, the shepherd, the shepherd who relentlessly pursues the sheep, the woman who relentlessly pursues the coin. But in this story, the father doesn't pursue the son. And that is interesting. And in fact, the father could be heavily criticized in their culture for what he did do. Because the younger son comes to him and says, give me my share of the inheritance. And as it points out, he's supposed to receive this after his father's died. So it was very insulting. It was very rude what he was saying to the father. Not only that, uh, but the, from the father's point of view, by the son coming to him and saying, I want my money right now, he's immediately showing he's not ready to receive this money. He's not a kind of person who you know, is ready to, to deal with this sort of wealth. And so the father would have had every right, uh, in fact, every expectation of not only refusing the son, but of insisting that the son stay at home. But instead, he does. He divides the wealth between the two sons. And sure enough, the next thing that happens is the younger son leaves home and wastes all the money on wild living, which anyone could have told him he was likely to do. And the father still does not pursue the son. He would almost certainly have known his son was in trouble, but he doesn't go and rescue him. He waits. He's let his son go, and for all he knows, this son might never come back again. It's a very possible uh, situation. Finally, the son comes to his senses and returns home. And at that point, when the son is far off, then the father rushes to meet him and shows love for him and welcomes him in and shows it was, he wasn't ignoring him, he wasn't re, you know, rejecting him. That's why he wasn't not pursuing him. He wants him home. So why did he let him go? Why did he give him the wealth in the first place? Why didn't he go and rescue him when the son was in trouble at a distance? I think the reason is something which we actually instinctively know, but it's kind of hard to put into words, um, which is that 
If he had forced the son to stay at the beginning, if he'd said, no, you stay, I'm not giving you money, and not only that, but I'm restricting you, you're going nowhere, the son would physically be at home, but he wouldn't mentally, spiritually, personally be at home, would he? Really, he'd be gone. And if the father had chased him and pursued him when he was struggling far off and had rescued him and brought him home and, and provided for him in that way, he could have, you know, again, the son could have physically been home, but really, uh, mentally, spiritually, he was not home. He was still far off. So for the father, the only way that son could actually be home was by letting him go and letting him have the choice of what he was going to do. And so I think what Jesus is trying to get across with this third parable, coming after the other ones that show about God's relentless pursuit of the lost, is that there is so far he can go that there's a point he can't go any further. There's a, there's a stopping point. And that stopping point is the free choice of the other person because love requires free choice. God can do so much the maker of heaven and earth and of everything can do so much, but he cannot force love because love has to be a choice. And so this father has to let the son go so that there is a chance, and only a chance, that the son might return and then genuinely be at home for the first time. And if you look at Jesus' ministry, then you start seeing how he does that repeatedly with the people that he meets. Um, I did an experiment this week where I looked through the Gospels, looking at the healings that Jesus does. Um, I didn't get through all of them, but I got through the, the vast majority. And Jesus heals in so many different ways. He might heal by touching people, uh, by speaking. Uh, he might do it at a distance. Uh, somebody might touch him, and so on. But there's a consistent theme that occurs in the vast majority of his healings, which is that at some point, either in the process of healing or afterward, Jesus says to the person, go. Now, he might, most, the most frequent thing is he would say, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Now, Jesus has healed them. But he says, go in peace, your faith has healed you. Other times he might say, go show yourself to the priests. Um, or he might say, take up your mat and walk. But there's some aspect of go. A couple of times he doesn't, but that's because the person's in their own home. He can't tell them to go at that point. But um, what is Jesus doing there? I think what he's doing is he's saying, okay, I'm healing you. I'm showing you God's love. You get to see how much God loves you. But now... There's no obligation. Off you go. I'm not doing this so that you then have to follow me. I'm not doing this so that you then feel an obligation to, to me. I'm doing it because I'm showing God's love and laying it down in front of you and saying, okay, over to you now. And his hope is that people will appreciate the gift, yes, but maybe some of them will look through the gift to the heart of the giver and see his nature and see who he is and say, I want to be with you. I want you and I want to learn to love you. And there's a wonderful little story in Mark of exactly this happening. It's in Mark chapter 10. 
Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. See, this is what Jesus was after. He says, go, and the Bartimaeus is healed instantly. And he could be thinking, well, I could go home now. He would love to go home, no doubt. But he sees the heart of the one who did this for him. He's like, I'm going to follow you. I want to be with you. And of course, that's probably why we know his name, is because he became a follower of Jesus and the disciples would have known him. It's the, the delicate nature of a gift is that we give, a gift has to be without obligation, doesn't it? Uh, a good example of, a bad example of this is, uh, say, for example, there's organizations or, or so on who give millions to politicians for their election campaigns. They don't do it because they think he's a great guy or because, you know, they're just out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because if the guy gets elected, they expect something back in return. That is not really a gift. A gift is given without obligation, but we still want, if we're giving in love, we still want a response of love. Let's say, you know, a guy is in love with a girl. And he wants to let her know this. Now, if he's, if he's like most guys, of course, he won't have any idea how to do that. Um, but um, maybe, for example, he decides he's going to give her some flowers and a note. He can do that. Now, some people might, say, shower her with expensive gifts, and I'm sure she wouldn't object. Um, but, uh, and there's not necessarily something wrong with that. But it does provide the risk, doesn't it? But if she does respond, is she actually responding because she appreciates you or because she's just appreciating the gifts and she wants them to keep on coming? Um, but somehow, he wants to try and get it across to her, so maybe he brings her flowers and gives her a, a note so that she knows, because she has to know that he cares. But then he has to step back and let her make the choice. He can't force her, he can't, she might, reject, she might walk away, she might appreciate the flowers, but still not be interested. And that's the risk he has to take. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, he paid the price so that we could come to God. But a part of what he was doing also was he was showing the full extent of God's love for us. And then laying it down, saying, okay, what are you going to do with that? And some people would reject it and despise him for the weakness which he was showing in that situation. A lot of people did, a lot of people still do. Some people might say, oh, that was a very noble thing to do, and then walk away. Some people would appreciate the gift, and that's a wonderful thing. 
what he's hoping will happen is that people will look through the gift to the heart of the giver to see the nature of the God who does this for us and says, I want to follow you. I want to be close to you. That's where I want to be. And what Jesus is is doing is actually following in the footsteps of his Father, because this is God's nature. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus talks about how God provides the sun and the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And it's what God does, isn't it? He gives us air to breathe. He gives us sun. He gives us rain. He gives us so many blessings. And we can use those things to blaspheme him, to attack him, to revile him. We can use those things for those purposes, and he won't take those gifts away. Now, yes, there is going to be a day of judgment for how we use the gifts that God has given us. But in the meantime, if we misuse the gifts he gives, he doesn't take them away. They're still there. He still provides. Why? Because the same thing. He wants, hopes that some will look through the gifts to see the heart of the giver and say, wow, what a God. I want to be close to you. I want to follow you. Wherever you lead, that's where I'm going. So, What's my conclusion then? What's the point? What am I, where can we go with this? Firstly, is just to appreciate God's love for us. Um, we can appreciate his gifts. We're coming up to Thanksgiving, and, and giving thanks is, is a very important thing to do. Let's appreciate that he went to extremes for you. You were that lost sheep. You were that lost coin at some point. Maybe you still are. Maybe you still need to come back to him because he does all of this and provides it so that you then have that choice how you are going to respond. He hopes that we'll look through the gift to the heart of the giver and follow him like Bartimaeus did and love him. And secondly, is that we then be like Jesus. We do everything we do as a passionate pursuit of the lost. If Jesus was ready to give up unimaginably more than we can imagine to come and find us, we have no excuse not to be ready to give up whatever we need to give up in order to also seek those who are lost. I've mentioned last week with discipleship how every moment in our lives then is an opportunity, big or small, to put into practice the things that he uh, has been teaching us. And during our days, sometimes frequently, maybe not so frequently, there are opportunities for us to show God's love to those who don't yet know him. If we act or speak to score a point or defend our pride or win an argument or avoid those who who think and act differently than us, we lose sight of the most important point, which is that these are lost and they need a savior. Another thing we need to do as part of that is to clear away anything that prevents them from seeing God's love clearly. In fact, when I was thinking about this whole subject of how do you, what, what's the extent to which you go and where's the, the point at which you have to stop, um, I think this may be a good sort of rule of thumb, is our job is to clear away the things that stop them seeing God's love clearly, and once they meet him, they get that free choice of whether they reject or accept it. 
Um, C.S. Lewis is a good example of someone. Uh, do you remember he had that uh, argument about saying that um, with Jesus, you have to decide whether he was mad, bad, or God. Um, and his point was that there's no other choices. If you read what he did, if you look at his life, he was either crazy or he was evil or he was God. And you don't get the other choice of maybe he was like a good teacher or a nice guy or whatever. Those are not options. And what he's trying to do is clear away fuzzy thinking, clear away uh, misconceptions so that people are face to face with who Jesus is and then can make that choice. And so there is... The, that important place then of not just doing but speaking, of sharing God's truth with people so that they have a clear idea of who he is so then they can make that free choice of what they do with it. I mentioned last week also with discipleship how it's messy and it's hard and it's slow and it's often disappointing. And the same is true, honestly, in this area. I'd be fascinated to know how Jesus dealt with those people that he met with, he was eating with and spending time with, what he said to them. It doesn't say. It's very frustrating to me. I'd love to know that conversation uh, with those people because they obviously wanted to be with him. They obviously didn't feel rejected by him, but also we know he wouldn't have compromised on the truth. So how did he do it? Very interesting question, and maybe something you can discuss in life groups. We don't know the answer to that question, but we do know that we have his same Holy Spirit in us that Jesus had. And so what situations we get into, we can trust him to provide us with the right words and the right things to do in those situations. And as with discipleship, if we see and are looking out for those opportunities, then we're more ready for those times when we uh, have that chance to do that. Often in that kind of situation, usually I'll offer a quick prayer of help, and then speak and trust God that he'll give me what I need to say, or act, you know, trusting him he'll, he'll lead the way. It's not easy, and Jesus himself had disappointments of those people he met with on that day, who knows how many of them ended up following him, but he gave them the opportunity, and some of them, hopefully, saw through him to God's love and responded and said, yes, I want to follow you. I want to love you. And for those who did, then there's a party in heaven, and that's pretty exciting. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and thank you that you saved us. We had no right to claim to that. We had no claim on you, but you came and you sought and saved us. And we thank you for that, Lord, and praise you. Lord, please help us. Please fill us with your spirit so that we can then go and love and care for people and respond to them where you put us, in our individual places that you have put us, by the power of your spirit so that more and more can come into your kingdom and there can be more and more parties in heaven. Amen.